Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Tennis with an Accent. This is Saqib Ali, your host, uh, welcoming you for a very insightful conversation. The guest today is a household name if you're following tennis in the last 15, 20 years. And if you're even older like me, who's followed tennis in the 80s and 90s, you also know his exploits as a player. So let me get the cat out of the bag. It's Paul Anacon. Yes, it's Paul Anacon. And uh, Tennis with an Accent just got better today. Welcome, Paul, to the show. Well, thanks for the invite. I know it's taken a while to uh, to get this organized, so I appreciate your patience and uh, looking forward to a good chat. No, I mean you were busy covering the tennis, and I totally know how this goes. And I'm <laughs> yeah, and this gave me more time to prepare. Yeah, good, so, good, good. So, standard question: uh, We all know you're a former player, but uh, which I ask everyone on my show: How were you introduced to tennis as a young boy, and who were your heroes? What's the backstory? Well, my parents um, were both school teachers, and they took up the game when I was a little boy. With and my brother and I, you know, instead of bringing us to babysitters, they took us to the to the public parks with them, and then uh, we started hitting tennis balls there. And from there, you know, it, it was I was about six or seven, and then from there, I just got more and more interested in it, and uh, took up the game pretty seriously, and took junior tennis, and and just kind of went and chased my dreams for a lot of years and luckily was able to keep chasing them. And now it's been, uh, it's been quite a journey so far. And I've been pretty lucky. So I've enjoyed it. No, indeed it has been. And it's not like a cliche when we say you have worn many hats in this, in the sport and, and you quite, you still continue to do it quite successfully, which is remarkable. So the first question or the segment of this conversation is Paul Anacon, the player, excuse me. So you're the original mm-hmm. chip in charge guy. And before Sabre was invented, you were coming in on people's Mm -hmm. first and second serves. So talk about the style. Was it like a natural ploy or was it something you grew up with? And uh, you think there's room for that today? Well, you know, interestingly, I came in the era uh, when wood rackets were phasing out. Okay, so I was born, I I learned on wood tennis rackets, right? So I grew up with the Dunlop Max Fly and the Wilson Pro staff. And then when I went to college, that's when the oversized Prince rackets came on. So my game as a junior was really developed as a baseline player where I had a kind of a slap shot forehand and a pretty big serve. Um, and then when I got to college, my college coach, uh, the late great Mike DePalmer, put a Prince graphite in my hand and he kind of said, you know, you're really, really good at the net. We got to get your game geared towards the net. And so once I got to college, I kind of pushed my way towards the net and um, with the big racket made the switch and became a big serve and volleyer and then became a chip and charger. And um, the rest is history. I mean, I think for me, one of the things that I've realized is it's really important for a tennis player to know who they are and what kind of game style they have. And so although my game was pretty one dimensional, it lent itself to clarity in terms of execution and what I wanted to do. And I think that that helped me a lot, particularly going from college ranks to the pro ranks, because I always kind of felt like I knew what I was going to try to do. And that clarity, I think, helps helps just about every tennis player get better. So it was an evolution from wood rackets to big rackets to chip in charge. And then uh, here we are. Yeah. And, you know, in your career, you won three titles. And uh, I, would, I would just want to draw a comparison here. Uh, there's one win over Edberg in LA where there were a lot of tie breaks and I believe there wasn't a backcourt point. Is is that a memory that you always, you know, one of the three titles that you always carry with you 
are beating a McIndo in his home slam, your home slam to you are also from New York, uh-huh. even though it's a first round win. So in the grand scheme of things, uh, you know, will these two memories of the player uh, be in the same bracket of winning a title, even though it's LA is always winning a title compared to a major win? In first right. Round? Right. It's interesting. You know, I think everyone, every kind of big moment has its own personality. And you mentioned it. Um, the, the win in LA was really important. It was my first title and it was a really important win in my career because um, just a couple of weeks earlier, I'd lost in the third or fourth round of the U S open to Matt Lander in four sets. And I had a little bit of a mental hiccup after I lost the third set in a tie break. And then before I knew it, I was down five, one in the fourth and I lost six, one. I didn't stop trying. I just, I just kind of blinked. I couldn't get over the fact that I was up in the tie break. I had set points to go up two sets to one and I just fell flat. And so after that match, I said, look, I'm never going to let that happen again. And sure enough, when I got to the, uh, to Los Angeles, a couple of weeks later, I got to the finals and Stefan and I had a really good battle. It was three tie breaks and we were both going back and forth. We both had chances and it was one of those opportunities that, because of just such a recent memory and recent learning experience, it really helped me get over the finish line and win that title. And so that kind of evolution and to see a resiliency be born out of disappointment really helped. So that being my first title and seeing what happened in New York and then coming back and winning a title like that really meant a lot to me. The win over John at the U S open was so special because you know, it's his home slam. It's my home slam. I had a lot of friends there. It was tough because it was the first round. And um, I think I was one of the next guys to be seated too. It was before they seated 32 players. And so it was kind of a crummy draw for both of us. And John was coming back, wasn't playing his best tennis. He was coming back off of a layoff. So he wasn't as sharp as he normally was. And, and I played a good match and it was exciting. Center court of the U.S. Open. and my friends at hand, and you know, it's one of those moments you don't forget. Yeah, it doesn't get better than that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so while I was doing this research, another name kept appearing. You know, in you know, in a lot of research when I've done for players, that's Aaron Crickstein, and you lost to him in one of the U.S. Open matches right after the McEnroe win. And uh, he, he's a guy. Again, I want you to wear quickly the coach hat. We you know he was your opponent, but he's a guy who's mm-hmm. won a lot of five-set matches. And I read his name in the newspapers. We didn't get coverage back then. He had a great forehand, what I recall. But what were his strengths? And uh, if you want to talk about the mental side of tennis, is Christian an example that you'll ever cite to, say, a Taylor Fritz while you're coaching him? I, I, think, um, I think that uh, Aaron was one of the most resilient players around. And I think that, um, you know, mentally he was one of the most disciplined guys. And again, like I said earlier about myself, he understood his game really well. So he knew what he was trying to do. He's trying to set up points to use his big forehand to finish. And he was very clear about how he was going to try to do that. So I think because of that, he was really disciplined about his shot selection. Uh, You mentioned his five set record. And because it was um, so good, that tells you something about his mental effort, right? He's so good at just staying in the moment and playing point for point. And yeah, I mean, if there's one thing that we don't, none of us really spend enough time, I think, with players when they're younger is helping them the, 
helping them understand the importance of disappointment and we're letting go of it to play the next point, to play the next shot. And, you know, you look at somebody like Rafa Nadal and he is the, you know, he's the best I've ever seen at staying in the moment. Nothing that has happened stays in his mind and nothing that could happen stays in his mind. The only thing that matters for Nadal is the next shot and the next point. And in a very similar way, in a very le- less demonstrative way, Aaron was the same. Well, you know, he had a great mentality of point for point tennis. And I think it's one of the key ingredients to people trying to reach their highest success level in anything, right? It's how well you deal with adversity and how well you stay in the moment and can recover and regain your focus and, and march ahead. So, um, yeah, that mental fortitude is really important. No, that's, that's actually a great anecdote for us. I mean, the hub, you know, the hobbyist podcasters, I mean, we talk a lot of tennis and what you just said, something very profound because we were discussing who stays in the moment and who has the highest tennis IQ in the Dahl and Borg. Borg is before my time, but these yeah. names kept coming up. And you said something about Crickstein. So that's kind of yeah, more for the, that's the bargain I got. I mean, I got more than I asked for. So Sure, sure. Yeah, and that's great. You're right. You know, Bjorn was the same way. You know, Bjorn was the same way. He was much more quiet. He was stoic. Rafa's a lot more high energy and, and wound much tighter. But it was the same thing. All that matters is the next point. And, and that stoicism, that ability to, you know, just kind of, forget what happened, focus on the next shot and just wash, rinse, repeat time and time again is huge. And, and if for, you know, for me, if I was coaching young kids, I would really try to help ingrain that in an early stage because I'm a really big believer that things do become habit. You know, you, you create habits and, and um, those habits, um, you know, good or bad are there from repetition. So when you repeat that when they're young and you keep them going, then, you know, there's a good chance you're going to create a lot of things that help with resilience and help giving themselves the best chance to play well at the biggest moments. So hold that thought. That's something very insightful again. So players have reps and, you know, these uh, muscle memory and the process. We've all, you know, listened to you and Cahill and some of those greatest, great minds out there. So do the same apply to coaching, because my next question is, when you took over Pete Sampras, it wasn't your usual situation because it came at the heels of his coach getting sick in Australia. You, mm-hmm. Jim Courier, Todd Martin, some of the guys were there, I read in the Steve Flink book. So when you took over that job, I mean, what kind of mindset did you go in with? Are you going to change something? Because you were not sure if this is a long-term arrangement. So talk about that partnership and what habits you brought on. Uh, yeah, you know, it was it was an interesting time for me because um, I, you know, I, I came across uh, the opportunity in a very sad way. I was kind of wrapping up my career and Tim Gullickson was Pete's coach and he fell ill um, with brain tumors, brain cancer. And, and it made it really challenging for me because I had known Tim and Tom Gully really well. And, and I came on the tour as they were finishing their career. And then I got to know Pete early on in his career because my brother coached me, his brother coached and traveled with him. So we just became friendly. But when you, you know, Pete had already, I think Pete had won three majors by then, maybe four majors by then. Um, and, you know, you don't want to mess things up most of all. And, and when you come into a situation like that, where there's so much emotion involved, it's complicated. And so 
we just had a really good relationship. We always have. And the communication was really clear and not just me and Pete, but me, Pete and Tim, you know, Tim was at home fighting his fight and also, you know, watching all Pete's matches, living vicariously through what was going on there. And I would talk to him all the time about how to react and act and, you know, what, you know, what kind of themes and what things to focus on. And, and Tim did an amazing job to be selfless and try to help me, you know, manage the situation. The goal was really simple. The goal was me was for me to help out as long as I could until hopefully Timmy got well again and he never got well. And and so I think luckily for all of us, we're pretty selfless, egoless people and very good friends. So there never felt it never felt that awkward for any of us. But the learning how to coach is really important because it's one thing to have the information it's another thing to know how to distribute it. And it takes a while to understand how to do that because you have to distribute it different to different people. Some people like a lot of conversation, some people like very minimal conversation. And so it's important to learn what your player needs. And you know, the thing I learned most is kind of my mantra is how little can I say to get the player to buy in and do what I want them to do. You know, that that's kind of that's kind of it because when the players out on the court, they got no place to hide. They're going to be the ones that have to problem solve and figure it out. So you have to be pretty clear about how to get the messaging across so players can learn how to problem solve by themselves. Sure. And and so I I learned a lot of that from Tim. And Pete taught me a lot too. You know, Pete was a young guy when I started with him. He was 23. Um and, uh, you know, we got to know each other even better, but we all, we just had to learn how to manage the situation and, and how to really maximize Pete's playing skills. And so that's, that was our goal along and, and it ended up really sadly, you know, and Tim losing his life, but, um, everyone did the best they could to make a terrible situation as tolerable as possible. Oh, very well said. And then during the response, you said pretty much less is more. So there's another famous quote from you after Sampras' big win in 95, the summer of 95, when he won the U.S. Open. And I'll just summarize a quote. It's, it goes something like this. I always tell him, if you don't use it, there's no sense having it. He's one of the few yeah. guys who can do everything. So keeping yeah. that in mind, now you sit in the analyst box of Tennis Channel. Do you see guys on the men's tour who have the assets which they don't tap into? Uh, yeah, but I, but I think the thing is, in today's game, it's much more homogenized. You know, I think the, the lateral tennis has become really preeminent. You know, people are playing lateral tennis from the back of the court, and players are such great athletes and such great movers and defenders. It's really difficult to finish points. And, and so... You combine the great athleticism, the great ground strokes with uh, technology and technique. Players can return serve better. They can create more offensive shots from defensive positions because of the athleticism, because of the equipment, the rackets and the strings and the skills. So it makes it a little bit more difficult to come forward. But I do think it's a really under underutilized part of the game. Um, I still think that there is a place for it. I don't think the old old school serve and volley every point 
would work anymore. But there's definitely opportunity to figure out how to finish at the net a little bit. And players just generally don't. And even now, you know, with Taylor Fritz, who I work with, he doesn't like coming forward. And and he's been, you know, one of the best juniors in the world playing from the back of the court. But, you know, it's for the last, you know, 18 months to two years, myself and David Nankin, who coach him, really think the best way for him to maximize his talent is to get comfortable from three feet behind the service line to three feet inside the service line. And that doesn't mean he needs to be there all the time. He just needs to be confident there. He needs to be able to back up his big ground strokes with the ability to hit one or two volleys to finish points. So I still think there's a place for it. Taylor's learning how to do it better. Um, He's buying into it a little bit more. Uh, You look at someone like Stefano Tsitsipas. He's a dynamic player. He comes forward well. Um, uh, Denis Shapovalov is is a great uh, example of someone in the last kind of 12 months that's gotten much better at coming forward. So there's an evolution and there's a skill set that would allow that to work, but just not point in, point out the way it used to be. So you you spent a few years in the uh, t- towards the tail end of Tim Henman's coaching box, and there was a clear improvement in 2004, which by many is a stellar year for him. He reached non-Wimbledon semifinals at majors in Roland Garros and U.S. Open, uh, reached the year-end uh, top eight championships. Did not win a title, but what propelled that success? Right. Well, well, one of the things that I look at is um, he, Tim and I were great friends and he's still one of my best friends. And look, that's one of the things I'm most proud of is all the players that I've worked with are still really close. I'm very close with Roger and Pete uh, and, and Sloan Stevens and, and Tim. They're all really good friends of mine, which is great. But Tim was kind of at the latter stages of his career. Um, he had dropped to 40 in the world. And, um, you know, we were just talking one day in the fall of 2003. And, um, you know, he was just asking me about his game. He said, what do you, you know, what are you seeing? What do you think? And we just started talking for a couple. We literally started talking every day about his tennis. And so we, we, we started, you know, focusing on some things to work on because he was 41 in the world and he started doing a few different things in practice. And a few weeks later, he ended up winning the Paris indoors, the Bear Sea tournament. And, and he beat, I think he beat Quirton, Roddick and Federer. Um, and he won that tournament in, in, in Paris. Yeah. And Grosjean. Yeah. So he had a really, I know he I knew he beat those three guys. I forgot about Seb. And, um, you know, after that, he was really happy and really excited and, and basically said, to, you know, do you want to, how do you feel about co- still coaching? Are you interested at all? And I said, I really don't want to coach. I don't want to travel a lot. And he said, that's great because I don't really want somebody all the time because he was older at that stage or whatever. So we put together something that was terrific. And, you know, that year he, um, you know, 2004, you know, I was really proud because that to me was one of my most prideful um, accomplishments was being able to help Tim get back from 41 to four in the world. And that's what he did that year. And he got to the semifinals of Roland Garros. He got to the semifinals of the U.S. Open. Um, so, so he had a really good year. And by year's end, he was back to four in the world and made the year-end championship. So I was really proud of that effort. And most importantly, I was proud of him because he did a great job and uh, he has an immense um, set of tools to work with. 
Um, so it was, it was really fun. And like I said, he's a dear friend. So it was great to be part of that. Again, that is a clear segue to my next question. Uh, you have coached all time legends like, you know, Pete and Roger, uh, you're like the, you know, pretty much like Phil Jackson of NBA. You, know, you work with that level. <laughs> What's the process for Paul Anacon to uh, get the next coaching gig? You know, what criteria, say, a Taylor Fritz or well, Tim Henman have to meet for you to? Well, well, well uh, t- the Tim Tim thing was easy because we were such good friends, and he didn't want me to, you know, he didn't, I didn't need to travel all the time because he was older. Um, and then after Tim, I didn't coach for a while. I um, I was involved in what I call institutionalized tennis. I spent a number of years working for the Lawn Tennis Association in England. Um, so I spent about 20, 20, 25 weeks a year over there helping, they're, you know, the USTA of England, basically, of the United Kingdom. So I was there helping them for about four years. And then four years in, I got a call from Roger asking him, you know, if I had any interest in coaching anymore, because I'd known Roger through Tim and Pete and and he was looking for a new coach. And so basically we chatted and I went to Switzerland and, and spent a couple of weeks there with them practicing and getting to talk about philosophy, each other's philosophy. And, and that kind of blossomed into a nice, you know, that blossomed into a nice four year run with Roger as well, which was great. So weirdly, most of my coaching things have come unsolicited, um, which has been a little strange, but it's been great. After that, I started coaching Sloan Stevens, which lasted only lasted about nine months or so. But Sloan's one of my dear friends as well, and that came about because she lives in LA when I lived in LA, and that made sense because I could spend a lot of time with her here. Yada yada yada. Then after that, I started working for Tennis Channel and um, doing a couple other things. And then Taylor's uh, agent reached out to me. And Taylor lives in LA. And I, I basically said, I'd, I'd love to work with him, but I just can't do it full time because of my commitments with Tennis Channel. And he had David Nankin, which was great. David uh, works for the USTA and David and I are really good friends. So we just talked and I said, if David's good with it, and I'm good with it and we can work together. That's what, that's what we've been doing. So it's been kind of an interesting journey. It really has. And, and I've been really lucky not only by the players themselves but the people you know I mentioned David Nankin I've learned a ton from David Nankin I learned a ton from Severin Luthi getting to spend a ton of time with him um, you know Tim Henman had a strength and conditioning physio uh, named Johan De Beer who now works for Tennis Australia I learned a lot from him so I've just been really lucky to have good people around and I've tried to pride myself on keeping my antenna up because as soon as you think you know everything you're in trouble no matter what you do in life and everything changes um so you have to be willing to change and learn and adapt and that's just kind of what i try to do with everything and if i can do that then i learn and i love to learn and and so it keeps me happy and it keeps me fresh and it keeps hopefully it keeps me young too (laughs) and that's that goes without saying but I'm sure the other names you took, they feel the same about you because you can't, you can only clap with both hands. So uh, <laughs> I was going to ask about Severin Ludi. So here we go. Uh-huh. What was the coaching experience partnering him to coach uh, oh, Roger? Severin is great. And uh, yeah. were there any inputs from Merka too, because she's a former player? So Absolutely. You know, look, people, I mean, I was really lucky because I, I, like I told you with Roger, I got to spend a few weeks with him early on just to get to know each other to see if it would work. 
and get to know Severin. And, and I knew he and Mirka, not, not that, not on a professional level, but, you know, friendly acquaintances from the tour. And we'd seen each other through years on the tour. But so, you know, first few nights we went out to dinner with, with Mirka and Roger to talk tennis, to talk philosophy. And Mirka was there. Thank goodness. I mean, no one knows his game better than her and she played. So she gets it. And, and, um, so we spent a few nights talking about tennis. Then during the day we would practice. I would spend a lot of time with Severin trying to learn the ins and outs of the basically whole team Federer and how stuff worked out. And Tony Godzik, his agent, was really tremendous in, in helping me understand and helping that learning curve go quickly along with Tony's wife, Mary Jo. So I had so many good people. Pierre Paganini um, was and still is Roger's strength and conditioning guy. So it was really about absorbing as much information as I could about how things worked and then making mental notes about how I could add value and discussing those mental notes with whoever I needed to, whether it was Mirka alone, whether it was Roger alone or Severin or Pierre. And then you learn how a finely tuned machine works and it's about everyone doing their job and it's about everyone being really transparent with their communication and, and, I was really lucky in that vein. But the biggest thing was really Severin's ability to help me understand the smoothest pathway to make my points and, and the easiest way to get Roger to understand what I was trying to do and why I was trying to do it and why it would help him. And, and, and ultimately, Severin and I have very similar coaching philosophies. So it didn't, it wasn't a big change. It was just Roger was hearing the same philosophies from a different voice and with a different experience behind it, you know, and I, I would bring certain experience that I had from the past, whether it be with Pete or playing myself or with Tim, some dynamics that maybe would help add a little bit of value. So all those things, you know, like everything else in life, you have to learn how your company works. And even though tennis is an individual sport at the top of the game, it's a team, you know, and, and you have to figure out how everyone you know, manages themselves together well to help the player play their best tennis. Yeah, very well said. And especially in this era, the big three and big four, if we include Andy Murray, all these guys have, have, have been surrounded by, you know, valuable team members like, you know, Goran and Marian Vaida are there. And then Boris was there with Marian Vaida for Novak, Moya and Francisco Roig. And, you, you know, Lendl was there with other coaches. So definitely, there's an extension of a question, not trying to stir the pot, but just, uh, is there sure, any room for over- you can sir you can no, sir no, go ahead no is there any room for over uh, overstepping in terms of you know every team member wants the best for roger or you know novak but we don't know we don't have go around here but uh, is there room for overstepping like in opinions what's the best move and then secondly even if you and severin are on the same page does federer block the idea and say no i can't tinker too much does that kind of conversation take place it, it does. And that's, I mean, that's the thing I always, I was so amazed about Roger and Pete was like this too, except Pete and I would do it by ourselves because there wasn't a big team back then is they, they want to hear what you're, I mean, I always find the most successful and secure people. They don't want people around just to tell them how great they are and pat them on the back. You have to be able to, if they say something that you don't agree with, you have to be able to kind of push back, obviously in a constructive way, but Roger was always really healthy about that. Always, he wanted to hear new ideas. Pete was the same way. We would be playing cards and I would be talking to him about 
you know, how you should play more athletic points. And you mentioned it before using all the, there's no sense in having all the tools if you're not going to use them. You know, these players that I've been fortunate to be around have allowed that, but it's all in how you deliver it. If you deliver it, you know, with no tact and you deliver it with a huge ego and a lot of anger, you're probably not going to be around long, but you have to figure out how to do it. And Roger, Roger was great about it. One of the first days we were on the practice court, Roger said to me, okay, what do you want? What do you want to do? And I said, what do you, I said, it's that simple. I've got to just tell you what to do, what you, what I want you to do. And he said, I might question you. So you better have some, you know, you might, you better have some good backup about your reasons, but yeah, tell me what you want to do. And then I might question you. And so from day one, it was always about a really nice communication and that communication isn't about just saying yes and just patting everybody on the back. It's about finding the right way to say, you know, I'm not sure that's the best scenario right here. And here's why. Let's talk about this. And then you sit down and talk about it. And, and I always feel like the best, most successful people can do that in a really health of it, healthy and productive way. It's just like anything else in life. The CEO of a company or the president of a country or the king or the queen or whoever if you if you don't have if they don't have the ability to hear and try to absorb and, and to do that in a way where you can have constructive conversations, you're really limiting your output. And and so I think good people and the best people tend to allow that to happen in a way that has growth for everybody. Absolutely. And then there's another thing that uh, one of our team members wanted to ask, and I'm going to relay the question here is. Uh, the federal training block is legendary. You know, we don't get to talk about that or there's not much information. I mean, not any player's information, but his practice sessions during majors, which we've seen, are very effortless. He's just, you know, come for a light hit. So if you want to share some light, you know, how intense of a workout uh, there is. And then sure. part B to the question, when you're coaching a Federer or a Sampras, is the training block revolving around strengthening their A games, what their core strengths are? Or is there uh, a willingness to improve on certain functions of the game that can handle Agassi or Goran in Pete's case or Novak and Nole in Roger's case? Right. Yeah, look, I think every player is different. But I'll tell you, you know, Roger, one of the best things that he does is prioritize his schedule and understand how – look, when, when you're an icon like – Roger is and you're a global brand you better be good at figuring out how to manage your time and prioritize issues because you're getting pulled a thousand different directions so you know in preseason or training block time we usually had a big one after the U.S. Open to finish the year we'd have a big one in December to finish the uh, to, to start the next season before Australia and then we'd have a, a pretty healthy one um uh, before the clay court swing to get through the grass season. And then after the grass season, you usually just had a little bit of a acclimation period to get used to the summer months. So he had three pretty significant ones and one kind of um, one that you had to piecemeal in a little bit, but they were all very, I mean, we would sit down, Severin and I and Pierre would sit down and look at the, you know, two and a half to four weeks and go, you know, Pierre would say, this is what I need physically. Severin and I would say, this is what we need for tennis. And then, you know, the, the Rogers physio at the time, Stefan Vivier, you know, would say, make sure that load, the load was correct. We didn't do too much too soon. 
that we made sure his body could hold up. So when when we got done with it, we had a pretty good indication of exactly how, you know, for instance, those two weeks in Dubai were going to be when I was there. You know, we knew what each day was going to be like. And so Roger would, you know, and Roger would just show up for work every day and he punched the punch the clock, you know, and and people see this graceful um athlete that just floats around and they think that it just happens. I can promise you it doesn't just happen. He's put in an unbelievable amount of work throughout his life. And because he's done so many repetitions, I think it's easier for him now to get to a high level. And he knows his body so well, he knows really well what he needs to be able to do to play long matches. And in particular, seven of them to win a major. That's very important. Sure. And the team around and the team around him sets that up. Now, about specific people, we tended not to do that in the off. I don't do that in the off season. About uh, okay, Pete, let's we're really going to work on this so you're ready for Andre, or we're really going to do this so you're ready for Goran, and and Roger, we're really going to do this so you play more successfully against Rafa. Or here's one of the things I want you to do when you play Novak. Those conversations would come up at dinner throughout the year. And then we would, you know, we would talk about philosophies and things to do to create different ways to be successful against players. And then we implement those strategies in practices periodically throughout the year and during tournaments, but it was never like a focus. Let's take these seven days and get ready for whoever, you know, Andre or Rafa or Boris, you know, and, and it was that, that stuff really is kind of an ongoing conversation that happens throughout the year. And with general tweaks and, and information gathering, you just adjust to figure out the best way to give yourself the best chance. Sure. So one more question, Roger, then we'll wrap this up with a couple of questions on broadcasting if you have the time. Sure. So at that level, right, when the guys achieve so much, how do you assess a successful coaching year when you sit down? And the year in question is 2011, because I think Roger played some great tennis under your watch. He has one major. He, should have, he could have won more. But that year, Novak was playing some sublime tennis. Rafa was Rafa at Roland Garros. But 2011 was a solid year, but he did not win a major. So in Pantheon of Greatness, that year is an odd year for Roger Federer. But when Paul Anacon, Luthi, and Federer sat down, what is the recollection of that year? Well, Ro- Ro- you know, Roger was, is a really, has a really healthy perspective. And I think that's probably why he's won 20 majors. Is I think that he understands there's so many tournaments. and if the evaluation is based or driven, you know, mostly by results, that's a pretty tough dynamic. Um, If your evaluation, your self-evaluation, especially throughout a whole season is driven by a process an orientation of a process of being prepared and trying to give yourself the best chance you can to play majors at the highest level, then you're generally happier and healthier. And in 2011, Roger played, you're right, he played some great tennis. I think he, I think he won the year-end championships that year, uh, ATP finals. And I think he played some pretty impressive tennis that tournament. Um, I actually think he had a very good chance to beat Rafa in Roland Garros that year. He beat Novak in the semis, and Novak hadn't lost yet in 2011. And the finals against Rafa, he was up 5-2 in the first set. And that was the first year that they started. They used really light and fast balls that year. And Rafa was not happy. And Roger really liked the conditions. 
and Rafa being Rafa found a way to problem solve and, and beat Roger in four sets. Um, but Roger had some good chances. So it wasn't like he didn't, it wasn't like the year was bad. Um, he had a lot of titles that year as well, but I think he does such a good job of evaluating himself on the process and the potential of putting yourself in positions to win that he, he can deal with that really well. You know, he had two match points in the semis of the U S open against Novak and lost. So he, you know, he deals with those things in such an amazing pragmatic way that I think the overall consequences of result orientation tend not to knock him down. Just like when he, when he won Wimbledon in 2012, you know, we went out, we had the nice party, the champions dinner, but he doesn't think he just cured cancer. You know, he he is a really good perspective about what he's done. He enjoys those moments, but he keeps them in perspective. So when he loses, they sting, but he keeps it in perspective. And I think that that's enabled him to play at such a high level for so long in his career. But most importantly, I think that's enabled him to have a really healthy, happy disposition on and off the tennis court because of that pragmatism. All right. So changing gears quickly, uh, broadcasting, you know, you're talking to tennis channel and the ESPN team does the same. You're talking to a wider uh, audience. I mean, there are people like me who remember Boris Becker's picture and you can tell what year it is, the tennis geeks. But then there's like mm. people who just watch Wimbledon final and US Open final or French Open final. So the next question is, when you uh, talk tennis with other f- great coaches and fellow broadcasters like Courier, Navratilova, etc., how do you try to balance the need to give fans deeper analysis by keeping it simple? Uh, can that mantra exist? Not right. That's a, keep and lose yeah. the audience. Right. No, it's a great question. And one thing I learned early on doing this is being a broadcaster, I look at myself, right? And I look at myself when I watch American basketball or football. There's certain people I prefer to listen to and certain that I don't. And some of them are great and really accomplished. And, and I just, they're just not my cup of tea. So you have to learn that you're not going to make everybody happy. So Jim Courier actually and Mary Carrillo were two people early on in my career. And also Ted Robinson that kind of said, you just have to find yourself. You have to find your voice. You know, you have to be who you are um, and, and you have to be comfortable doing that and understanding that what you want to do is not tell the people at home what happened. They saw what happened. But as an analyst, tell them why it happened and tell them what's going on in their mind and tell them what happens and why it happens in major moments. That's how you can sprinkle out things that they might not understand. So Jim and Mary Carrillo and Ted Robinson and bunches of others, my bosses, um, you know, Rush Schneiderman at Tennis Channel and, and Bob Wiley at Tennis Channel, they've been really good about helping me understand there really isn't a right or wrong because people are going to have their preferences, but it's about mostly you're Paul Anacone, the former player coach of two of the all time greats. Tell people stuff they don't know. Tell them why things happened out there. Tell them what to look for. Uh, you know, give them some insight about how pressure manifests itself, you know, things like that. So I just try to keep things like that aware um, and out there. And I was always just told at the beginning of sets, you know, you can set storylines and have stories. And the closer it gets to the end of the set, the less you want to say, just let the tennis play. Sure. <laughs> so, 
you try to keep it pretty simple, but I still rely on the people that have been doing it a lot longer than me to help me because there are times, there are days where you just talk too much and you want your producer to say, okay, Paul, take a deep breath. You know, you, you need that. You need that. Or there are times where you're too quiet where they got to say, come on, bring your energy up. So just like anything else in life, you need coaching. And luckily I've had a lot of good people coaching me and I'm still learning and I hope to keep learning. And, you know, the most important thing for me is how lucky I am. I get to watch tennis for a living. That's pretty darn good. So I'm, I'm a happy man. No, no, you definitely have a, a knack <laughs> of de decomposing complex thoughts. I mean, I'm a witness. I watch a lot of your coverage. You, along with Darren Kale, are some of, and Courier, are some of my favorite commentators. We, we learn a lot from, you know, your analysis. So tennis has historically, Paul, not kept as many statistics as, say, professional or college teams do in the U.S. So what do you think the Tennis Channel and other media outlets can do to provide more stats and visual analysis for a global fan base, which is always yeah, craving more info? Yeah, I think it's really interesting. And this is one of the things that I've had to juggle because... I think statistics in isolation are very dangerous. And um, I think they can be incredibly helpful, but if you don't use them the right way, they don't tell a whole story. And I'll give you a great example of this. This is back in the dark ages, but I was coaching Pete Sampras and I was trying to convince him that he needed to chip in charge on second serve returns a little bit more just once in a while, because he's a great athlete. He covered the net. He could jump through a roof. Um, he volleyed incredibly well. So let opponents know that you weren't afraid to chip and charge. And I str he struggled getting him to buy into this because he would say, you know, if I come forward off a second serve, they can just get lucky and just hit one passing shot and the point's over. Whereas if I'm at the back of the court, I'm a good athlete. I can stay in the rally. I can find my forehand. And so I had a hard time initially. And, and one year in Australia, he was playing a match. And the first set, I think he chipped and charged like three or four times. And he lost all the points. And he won the match. He won a tiebreaker in the first set. And then he won the next couple of sets or something like that. And, and he came off the court. And I wanted to remind him. And I said, you did a great job the first set. You chipped and charged three times or four times. And he said, yeah, but I lost every point. And I said, yes. And I said, but why do you think you got two double faults in the tie break? <laughs> so, like, in, 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 if you look just at statistics, all you'll know is he went 0 for 4 in chip and charge. And you'll know the other guy had two double faults in the tie break. But it doesn't show you the emotional correlation between the two, right? It doesn't show you why things happen. So, for me, when I'm looking at analytics and metrics, I like to try to figure out, what's going on to cause those numbers? Why might they be happening? And that example with Pete was a great way for me to show him, even if you're not really successful early on in a match doing something, it may pay dividends later on in the match. So the challenge is figuring out how to do it enough so you get better at it and how to do it enough so that you impose your will on your opponent and there's residual effect. Those stats aren't shown very much. So as a coach, you better be able to figure out, number one, how to explain that to your player, and number two, how to get them to buy in and believe it. Sure. But, but, but your point about the statistics are, are, are really important because, I look, I, as an analyst now, I look at all the Hawkeye stuff. I've got an affiliation, total transparency uh, with PlaySight, and I look at a lot of the information. that they, There's an unbelievable amount of information out there. So – 
you can find almost too much. So you have to be careful about sensory overload. And as an analyst, if I'm on air and I've got the people in the booth saying, here's X, Y, and Z, if it doesn't help me make a point, I don't want to just throw numbers up there. So I try to use the two, the philosophy of what's happening on court and back it up with numbers so the people at home can go, oh, now I see, oh, he's hitting 34% of the balls inside the baseline. Well, what does that mean? What it means is he's taking time away from his opponent. That's why the opponent is actually hitting 45% of his shots nine feet behind the baseline. So he's taking time and space away. So if I can use the analytics to tell a story and help explain things and teach someone something, that's terrific. All right. So again, you unpacked quite a lot. I have to listen to this answer again when I'm editing the show to absorb. But yeah, there's a lot in there and you're right. I also okay. agree. It's, it's the tip of the iceberg as far as information goes. I think the more we go in, you know, in this direction, I think the fans will be educated and you're right. I mean, stats in isolation you know, cannot be viewed, uh, you know. So the ATP, last question on the broadcasting uh-huh. here. Uh-huh. Uh, do you feel when you were coaching Federer in 2010 and now you're coaching or consulting with Fritz in 2020, Novak, Roger, Rafa were the cream back then and they're still right there. Roger didn't play this year, but, but overall, has a game changed between the 10 years that doesn't meet the naked eye? I think the, I think the level's gotten better. And, and amazingly, I think those three guys have gotten better and they've gotten better because of each other. <laughs> you know, I, I think that they're playing at a higher level, you know, before Roger got hurt, I think he played some of his best tennis, especially, you know, in 2017, 2017 and 18, he played great tennis. Um, and the reason for that is because he had to, because Rafa and Novak were getting better, which also means guess what? The younger guys are working hard to get better as well. So I actually think that the um, level across the board is getting better, and it's all because the top three are leading it. They're making everyone else have to get better to try to compete. Sure. All right, so one last narrative fan question. I have to get this okay. in there. Yeah. All right. So, and, and this, this applies not to tennis. Uh, I've asked this in, even in my cricket podcast. I mean, there's a young group of analysts on Twitter. There's a lot of noise, but people also make a lot of sense. And the younger group argues that we've been fed this narrative of big moments or the moments that matter are big matches. But they believe the second round match or the final match, it's all part of the process. If uh, Boris Becker didn't beat Derek Rostanio in US Open second round at that match point, he wouldn't have the chance to play Lendl in the final. So no match is bigger. It's just how we've, you know, we've been given the information. Right, right. Uh, similarly, the one-all game is as important as a six-all game. So do you believe right. that? Do you think there's like a narrative that's been carried forward or you think at six all you can lose the set at one all you can't well look i i I, it's a it's a really interesting commentary on sports in general right they they remember the putt that the guy missed on the 18th green at from four feet you know but they forget about the other ones and all the other holes leading in you know same thing with a basketball game or you know with cricket as well you can do that but i i think those moments are highlighted. They are highlighted for people for a reason. But I, I think the best players know how to manage the big moments most successfully. And most of that is the fact that they're able to play every point with that laser-like focus. So every moment, I mean, if you watch Rafa and you watch him play the first point of a match and you watch Rafa play match point, 
you cannot convince me that he looks any different. And, and he's the quintessential competitor about that. He plays every point as if it depends on whether or not he's going to be able to feed his family. And, and so my point is, if you get into that mindset, you are able to play those big moments. Personally, for me, I totally understand why those big moments are shown, but there's a lot of other things that lead up to it. And a lot of times I'll have to talk to Taylor, particularly as a young player now, Taylor Fritz, He'll go, I, oh, I blew this game, blah, blah, blah. That cost me the match. And I'll go, what are you talking about? What about the stuff four games earlier that ha- – like I'll bring stuff in that if that didn't happen, he would never have gotten to that position. You know, So you have to figure out how to use it the right way as a coach. And as a tennis fan, I understand the ability and desire to want to see that and to see that at that big moment. But keep it in context – and remember what happened to get there because it doesn't always tell the whole story. So anyway, well, I I appreciate the time, but uh, I'm about ready to wrap up. You think you got enough info? No, I I think I got more than enough. I think we kind of went 10 minutes over, but yeah, I lost track of time. Thank you very much for coming. It's been fun. It's been fun, Saqib. Thank you so much. And thanks for your patience and uh, good luck with everything. And I look forward to uh, chatting again down the road.